Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of Fake TV Critic, a podcast where I discuss the week's biggest TV news headlines, recap and analyze some of my favorite shows, and let you know what you should be watching. <laughs> okay, I just read this first story right before I started recording, and it, it made me giggle. So I am apparently the only person left on the planet who has no idea what Squid Game even is, let alone that has watched it. So I, I, I don't even... I, all I've gotten is that someone's like, oh, it's like The Hunger Games. So I'm not going to watch it. I do not care about it. I also really hate when everyone in the entire world is watching and loving something because it hypes it up too much in my mind and I always hate it. So I'm not even going to, I'm, I'm not going to watch it. You can't pay me. You can't make me. So regardless though, um, apparently dressing up like characters from Squid Game is like a really popular Halloween choice this year, you know, which makes sense. It's an enormously popular TV series and it just came out. So it's in the forefront of everyone's minds, but apparently um, kids are dressing up as characters from squid game. And I, again, I don't even know what they would be dressing up as, but they are. And apparently a bunch of school districts have had to ban squid game costumes because the kids aren't just dressing up as the characters from Squid Game, they're also playing Squid Game, like, at recess. And uh, I guess something, I'm sure most of you listening to this are at least passingly familiar, more so than I am, with Squid Game. But, like, I guess they have challenges or games or something. And then when you're playing the games, one person gets eliminated, which means they die. And the show is rated TVMA. Like, it says on the screen on Netflix violence, gore, nudity, drugs, sex, like all that stuff. But apparently kids are watching it because of course they are. Um, you know, no one cares. Parents don't care. They didn't care when I was young either. That's not, that's not a diss against parents these days. Like I was walking around at like seven years old singing all the words to Creep by TLC. So, you know, whatever. But regardless that at recess, these kids are like beating the shit out of each other <laughs> in these costumes. So school districts have had to ban costumes to try to get it under control which is just so funny to me that kids are like playing red light green light and at the end of it just like trying to kill each other that god kids are the worst stop bringing kids into the world we don't need any more people anyway also <laughs> uh the national treasure reboot remake reimagining tv series on disney plus cast its leading role the series is going to be led by an actress named Lizette Alexis, who has only done one thing in her career, and it is a YouTube web series starring Mackenzie Ziegler from Dance Moms called Total Eclipse. So she was on that, and now she is going to be the lead on a Disney series. So, like, good for her. And the, the National Treasure series is going to follow the point of view of a young Latina woman who is a dreamer in search of answers about her family, who then, quote, embarks on the adventure of a lifetime to uncover the truth about the past and save a lost Pan-American treasure. The character's name is Jess, quote, a Latina whose brilliant and resourceful mind loves a good mystery, and she has a natural talent for solving puzzles. Over the course of the show, Jess will uncover her own buried history, as well as the truth about her parents and her connection to a long-lost treasure. 
So I guess that's finally going into production soon. I don't really understand why they're doing this this way. Like, we all have for years been clamoring for a third National Treasure movie. And instead they're like, oh, we're going to give you a TV series. And that's like, yes, wonderful. But it's going to have nothing to do with the movies. And Nicolas Cage and Justin Bartha are not going to be in them. And then we're all like, but then what is the point? Like, this is not what we wanted. Like, I'm going to watch it and I'm sure it'll be at least fine. You know, it's Disney Plus. Nothing they do is like ever really bad, whether it's what we want or not, whether it's great or not. That's up for debate. But it's never like bad. It's never a bad quality thing because it's Disney. They have high standards that at the very least, they're not going to put out something that's garbage. But also like why do this rather than just giving people what they want? We want a Nicolas Cage movie. We want a third Nicolas Cage movie. We want Benjamin Gates. That's what we want. We want absurd clues to a maybe, maybe not treasure hidden in national monuments and documents and landmarks. That's what we want. We want that stupid shit. That's what made those movies good, is that they were dumb, and it was Nicolas Cage being absurd. That's what we want from these. Like, we don't need a serious retelling about immigration, and we, like, I just, I just want a third National Treasure movie. We're not getting it. We're getting this show. So I'm going to take it because they are giving it to us. But it's not what I want. Disney, if you're listening, we didn't ask for this. Anyway, also this week, the People's Choice Award nominations came out. And who boy, are they as stupid as always. <laughs> there is a reason these are called the People's Choice Awards and not like the best of TV movies as voted by the people because that's not what these are. This is like, this is the hot garbage that people consume on their couch on Friday nights and binge. And it is comfort food. It is trash. It is the stuff that we all consume, but would never consider like award worthy. That's what this stuff is. So and then we get to vote on which of it we want to win an award. Not even what's the best. Again, it, it's not even like these awards are like the best of this these choices. It's like what people want to win an award. You know what I mean? Like for movies, the ninth Fast and the Furious movie got like the most nominations. Like that should tell you something right there. The movie nominees are like the Fast and the Furious 9 and Black Widow and Dune uh, the new James Bond movie, Shang-Chi, the Tomorrow War, which is like that alien movie with Chris Pratt, the new Venom movie, which like none of these movies are good. None of them, I mean, like maybe the new James Bond, maybe Dune, okay. But like none of these are meant to be taken like all that seriously. And that's, I think these awards are not meant to be taken all that seriously either. So the TV nominees for the show of 2021 are Cobra Kai, Grey's Anatomy, SVU, Loki, SNL, The Bachelor, This Is Us, and WandaVision. Like, could you imagine a more ridiculous crop of TV series all vying for the same award? Honestly, think about that for a second. SVU, which has been on the air for like almost as long as I've been alive. SNL, which is never good, but has some great cast members and some like memorable sketches 
wedged into the bullshit. The Bachelor, which is coming off of a season that was marred by racial insensitivity. Like, it's just Grey's Anatomy, which again has been on the air, I feel like, my entire life. It's just, they're just bizarre nominations. They're just bizarre. You know, I don't know, like reality show of 2021, two iterations of The Real Housewives, Beverly Hills in Atlanta, Love and Hip Hop Atlanta, The Kardashians, Jersey Shore, 90 Day Fiance. I mean, like, they're just, the nominees are absolutely insane. So if you would like to view the nominees, feel free to hop on the internet and, you know, go ahead and click through there. But, um, and you can vote as well if you would like, but like, whoo bitch <laughs> these nominees are actual insanity and then finally in renewals and cancellations nothing canceled this week but renewed we got succession renewed for a new season even though it just started its third season on hbo and then we got full season orders for two abc comedies the wonder years which just premiered this season and home economics which was kind of surprising that it didn't already have a full season order considering it's in its second season this year so both of those air on Wednesday nights on ABC and will be on the air through the spring with full, I, I don't know, full season orders depend <clears throat> on the network, the number of episodes, but I would imagine that means anywhere between 18 and 24 episodes, probably, probably somewhere between 18 and 22, I would say is a safe bet for those. All right. Coming up this week on the podcast, I am discussing the season nine premiere of Below Deck on Bravo, and I'm also discussing We're Here on HBO, which if you are not watching, you must start. It is one of the best shows on TV. Okay, so stay tuned for that. If you are not currently watching We're Here on HBO, you are missing out. You must watch it. I love that drag is so mainstream right now. I mean, I, I don't entirely love it, but I, I love it. I, I love that this like underground thing that used to be only for a certain sect of people is gaining so much traction and being so celebrated. And these great drag artists are now, you know, in a lot of cases, very famous. And, you know, we have three drag queens on an HBO series. You know, we have RuPaul's Drag Race being the most awarded reality series in Emmy history. We have how many iterations of Drag Race around the world? Like right now, we have two airing at the same time, UK and Canada. There's US and Holland and Thailand and Spain and Italy is coming up, I think, sometime this month in November. Then Paramount Plus also has Queen of the Universe coming out in December, which is a singing competition for drag queens. We have drag queens on Eurovision and on American Idol, I think. Well, Australian Idol. I know Courtney Act at least was on Australian Idol. We have drag queens in integrated so much into our culture now. And that's wonderful to see so much queer representation. And we're here, I think, is really the pinnacle of that representation. It's so uplifting and positive and beautiful and emotional and... Oh, I love this show. Okay, so the basic premise is there are three drag queens, all of whom were, were at some point on RuPaul's Drag Race. And it is Bob the Drag Queen, who won season eight, Eureka O'Hara, who was on seasons nine, ten, and most recently All Stars six, and then Shangela, who was on seasons two and three, and then All Stars three. And these three queens travel around to small towns across America to 
bring fabulousness basically to the town and they each get a mentor or a mentee rather of either a queer person or maybe a queer adjacent person and they have some sort of mission to put them in drag over the course of these days that they are in the town and then to show the town what queerness is basically to celebrate drag as an art form and queerness as an identity and as a way of living and as something that's not going away. You know, the title of the show is We're Here and it's twofold. It's literally we're here in that these three drag queens are arriving to a small town and announcing we're here. It's us. We're here. But it's also underneath the surface of we're here in that queer people are everywhere. You may not be able to see, we're not always walking around in drag, right? We're not always, we don't always look like men in dresses. We don't always look like butch lesbians or whatever, um, but we are everywhere. We're here. We're here. We've always been here. And I love that, that kind of double meaning. And throughout these days that they are there, they talk to their mentees and get their life stories, get their histories. And it's just, it's an incredible space for people to share their stories. And hearing people's stories is always so powerful to me because not only do you get to know that person, you get to know the story of their families, of their friends, of where they're from. And the best way that we overcome things like hatred and bigotry and stereotypes and all of hatred is by getting to know people on a personal level. Like the, the reason that transgender issues have had so much um, forward motion in, I think the past few years is simply visibility that we've in making it safer in a lot of places and making it uh, visible even through trash, awful garbage people like Caitlyn Jenner, her simply existing and being on TV and being a visible, outspoken, even if it's in the wrong, the a bad way, trans person, people now know what that is. Caitlyn simply existing gives people something to connect this idea of what transness is to. So when someone may be close to them or you know, someone they know or have heard of comes out as trans, they know what that means and it helps them to understand it. And that is invaluable. It also, you know, the more visibility there is for people like, for trans people, for queer people, the more we see them represented in media, in our everyday lives even, the easier it is for people, or the harder it is, rather, for people to hold a prejudice against them. Because that fear of the unknown is no longer there. They can now under, they now know someone, maybe not personally, but they know what being trans is. They know what being gay is. They know what being non-binary is. They know what being genderqueer is, maybe. And maybe they don't understand it. But, they, but if the familiarity is the beginning of that understanding. 
So I, I love We're Here. So this episode this week was probably the best of the entire series so far. And the small town they travel to in this episode is Del Rio, Texas, which is a border town across from Mexico. And their three mentees are the mayor of the town, whose name is Bruno, and he was elected, um, I believe, in 2018 as a Democrat. He was elected running against a Republican in a very, they make it clear that Del Rio is a conservative town and, you know, which is not surprising. It's in Texas. And he was elected as an openly gay man who had moved away for many years and moved back for his 15 year high school reunion and decided to run for mayor. Um, And he makes it very clear. Like the reason I won is because I didn't make it about my sexuality. My opponent tried to make it about my sexuality and I wanted to fix the town and people responded to that. You know, like just because people maybe don't understand things like queerness doesn't mean that they hate you for it. That if you can speak their language and you can connect on a different level or understand each other on a baser level, then you have your in, right? So that's great. He's done some great things since, since then. You can Google him. Um, he was also in the Air Force at one point. He went to Kuwait. He is, serves on a county wide commission in Texas with some other heavy hitters. He has declared each June since his election Pride Month, which they never previously had. And that includes this episode was filmed in June. So this all occurred during Pride Month. And it's just kind of wonderful to see what this man has done with his platform and in this town. And with, again, just being a visibly queer Latino person, he called himself Tejano. Uh, so like kind of a, a Mexican cowboy is how he describes it. And to be that kind of, it's really interesting that, I'm sorry, I'm all over the place and going on tangents. It's really interesting the way this whole episode kind of works together in that the town of Del Rio is a border town, right? It, it, it exists on the literal United States border of Mexico. It's also a border town in that most people that we meet and that we see in this town exist in different places consecutively um, or not consecutively, concurrently. In that like one of the mentees who is working with Bob the Drag Queen, his name is Isael, and he lives in in Texas, but he's from Mexico and his family still lives in Mexico. So he's traveling across that border constantly. So he is literally existing in both places at the same time. He kind of considers both places home there. That is interesting. And also in a metaphorical way that like a lot of these people exist in multiple places where they are othered in multiple ways. They are uh, Latino and queer. They are Latino and Texan and queer. And the way these different identities kind of blend and create their own identity is really interesting because queerness, I feel like a lot of times also exists in this borderland, right? Where we straddle a line, we exist in multiple worlds. We exist in a world that is straight because that is the world we live in. The world we live in, straight is the default. Heterosexual is the default. You are assumed to be straight at all times, even if people have an, maybe like, 
like I, you can tell the way that I'm talking right now, <laughs> my voice is probably more feminine in in intonation than maybe is typical of most masculine men. But people also don't just assume that I am gay, or at least they don't vocalize that because it is not considered appropriate because if you're wrong a straight person will take offense to it because again straight is the default so queer people exist in the straight world obviously we all do but we also exist in a queer world and if you are a queer person who identifies as maybe gay and not hetero not uh not cisgender then you're in another kind of in-between space and that happens with joey who is eureka's mentee in this episode where Joey in the episode is using he, him pronouns because that's what his family is comfortable with. Again, what I was saying about like existing in the straight world, we do this for the comfort of others. We, 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 meaning queer people, we exist in a way to make straight people comfortable because it is dangerous for us to try to challenge that a lot of times. So Joey wears makeup, gets his hair done, wears female clothing a lot of the times in the episode, but uses he, him pronouns because that's what he thinks his family is comfortable with. He then, over the course of the episode, tries to explain to them what being gender fluid or gender queer or non-binary is, and that that maybe is how Joey feels, that he's in an in-between space of not being really male or really female. And in trying to explain that to his parents, gets kind of flustered because his parents do not understand. His mother speaks Spanish as her first language, and she can't communicate in English what she's trying to say, and Joey can't communicate in Spanish what Joey is trying to say. So they're in this weird in-between place, and that is what a borderland is, right? That's what a border town is. It's an in-between place. It is on the border. It is metaphorically a place in between two places. Um, and then by the end of the episode... It's revealed that weeks after filming, Joey has started using she, her pronouns. So good for her. And it's all a really interesting practice of, like I said, visibility, of acceptance, both of yourself and within your family unit, within your community. There was a really fun scene where Bob, Shangela, and Eureka went out to a Agua Fresca stand and a taco truck. And basically every queer person in town, which there were quite a few. I was shocked by how many out queer people existed in this town, especially considering we've been learning up to this point how conservative it supposedly is. Maybe it's really not. Maybe, maybe it's shifting. Everyone seemed to be very accepting. Isael comes out to his parents and immediately they're very accepting. They want to come to his drag show and they do. And his dad and looks like he's having a great time and his mom is having a great time. And they hug him backstage and tell him how proud they are of him. Um, Joey's parents both come and participate and the whole town is there to support Mayor Bruno. And it's just such a lovely show to watch. It's such a lovely experience to have to see queerness being celebrated in this way is so heartwarming and there's talent on display as well. The, the crew is mostly queer, the makeup artists, the costume designers, the wig makeup or the wig artists, like all these queer people are employed and traveling to these small towns and experiencing small town life. So it's like, it's a learning experience for the Queens because they get to experience what an everyday life is like 
in these small towns across the country. They've been to Alabama and Temecula, California, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, now Texas. Um, I think South Carolina might have been in the first season that we're seeing all of these small towns and life in these small towns. But then also these small town people, the people living in these small towns get a taste of what it's like to have like gay people come to town and to get a taste of the big city, quote unquote, with these drag shows and with filming and HBO TV crews coming through. And it's just, it's such, it's a learning experience, I think, for everyone involved. And it really does show, even again, in the more challenging episodes, and when we have people who are speaking about how hard it is for them to have grown up gay or to live where they do and be gay or to have come out to their families across generations that even in those difficult times, there is a love there and there is a celebration of both self-love and communal love and support amongst these amongst these drag queens and amongst their family and friends. And if they don't have any of that, they still have Bob Shangela and Eureka. Right. And it's just, it's, I don't know a better word for it than it's heartwarming. I love this show so much. The first season was six episodes. This season is going to be eight. It's currently airing Monday nights on HBO and HBO max. And you can catch up whenever you want on HBO max and the HBO app. And I really do recommend that you do. It's such a beautiful little show. I love it. And I hope that you love it too. And I hope if you're not watching it that you start to. Okay, bye. <laughs> Yay. I am so excited to be back on board. Haha, ha, stupid pun. For a new season of Below Deck after taking almost all of this past season of Below Deck Med off. I did not want to support the fact that Sandy and Malia were back on the show when they should have been fired because they are toxic assholes. So I did not watch, I think I watched one or two episodes of that when there was nothing else on, but I did not follow it regularly. And I missed it. I missed Below Deck. Below Deck is currently, to me, the most consistently entertaining franchise that Bravo has. The Real Housewives have some clunker cities, and then cities, even the ones that are good, have a lot of clunker seasons. It's been happening a lot this year, like New York, which is usually great, was pretty bad. Um, Salt Lake City, which was great in the first season, is really slow so far. I don't hate it, but it's just not moving very quickly, and I'm a little bored by it. Um, Atlanta has had a lot of really boring seasons, I think. So Below Deck, though, even when it's infuriating is really entertaining. So I'm really happy to be back. So we get season nine premiered this past week. And we're back in the Caribbean. We're on St. Kitts this time, I think it's called. And the returning cast members, we're getting Eddie, who was a deckhand in the very first season, was a bosun last year, and is now first officer. I don't know what the hell that means. It kind of just seems like he's a bosun this season. You know, he's just pretty much running deck crews. I don't know if that's just like a title that they give him and he's basically doing the same job. I don't freaking know. But Eddie is our first officer. I love Eddie. He is so much fun. He's such a cutie and he's so funny. Uh, I love him. Then we also are getting the return of Eat My Cooter Chef Rachel, 
who was a train wreck last year, but a very entertaining one. So I'm excited to see her back because she is a loose cannon and a wild card and whew, love it. She's She is drama. She walks into a room and lights it on fire. I love it. And then we're also getting Captain Lee, who unfortunately is not in this episode because once again, <laughs> he was delayed by a medical issue and we don't really know what that is. Hopefully he'll talk about it. Hopefully it wasn't like COVID or something, but he cannot make it for the first charter. So we get a new captain, Captain Sean, who is a little bit of a psychopath and the rest of the cast is all new. So... I mean, let's let's talk about the the cast first, I guess. Okay, so we have Captain Sean, who was the captain of the crossover, I think is what they call it, which is like the boat delivery. So whenever wherever the boat was before the season, delivering it to St. Kitts, he was the captain of the boat then. And since Lee couldn't make it, they just I guess asked him to stay on. And he's like clearly playing up his own personality for the show. Like I feel like he's probably a really boring person and especially a really boring captain in like actual life but for the show he has this huge speech where he sits everyone down is like don't make me fire you i'm not afraid to swing the axe but like i don't know it's like it's a big like chest puffed dick swinging kind of speech and i don't think he actually means any of it because later in the episode like he's just a micromanager which is the worst kind of boss to have but probably works for him for crossings so whatever. I don't know. He like late, late in the episode, he like wants to delay a beach picnic by almost an hour because he wants more pillows. Like, first of all, you're the captain. Go in the fucking crow's nest or whatever the fuck it's called. Like, get out of here. You have people whose job it is to set this up. Go away. And then to like make these people wait 20 minutes and then another half an hour. So because you want more damn pillows, get Drive a boat. Get out of here. Go write down some coordinates. Go watch the weather. That's all I know that captains do on the show. Anyway, he's he's annoying, but also kind of fun to watch in the first in his first speech. I'm not gonna lie. Um, rest of the crew that's new is new Chief Sue. Her name is Heather, and she is difficult to look at. And that is very mean of me to say, and I'm sorry, but it's true. I. She, like, vaguely resembles Sarah Paulson, but also, like, I don't know. She has such an overbite that that's all I can look at is her mouth. And it's really distracting. And I'm sorry. Like I said, I'm not making fun of her for it. I'm not mocking her. It's just, it is very distracting. And it's all I can see. It's kind of like when people dye their hair pink. I don't pay attention to a word that they're saying. I just, I'm staring at your pink hair. Like, if you have hair that's a weird color blue, green, pink, purple, whatever. I'm never listening to what's coming out of your mouth. I'm looking at your hair. It's kind of the same thing here. We're like, I'm just looking at her mouth and I'm not hearing anything coming out of it. The second Sue is Fraser. Fra he has a British accent, so he says Fraser, but I, it's Fraser, I'm going to say, because my it makes me have a lisp when I try to pronounce it with its accent. Fraser, who is only our second male Sue on the history of the Below Deck franchise, which I love. Um, getting gay vibes. I don't know if that's been confirmed. I don't remember it being confirmed, but definite gay vibes is, has a lot to live up to because Josiah is my favorite non-chief stew, stew of all time on all of Below Deck. So he has a lot to live up to as the second male stew. And so far, pretty much delivering. I love him. 
Third stew is Jessica, who loves laundry. That's pretty much all we get from her. Deck team. Um, Eddie is first officer slash bosun slash head of the deck crew. I have no idea what he's actually doing. What is like what these job title differences are. Raina, I love. Black woman joining the deck crew. She seems down and fun. Um, Wes, we don't really get a whole lot from him. He's the last one to arrive. I, he's there. And then Jake, who like everyone is kind of lusting over from the beginning. And I do not understand this because he has like a snidely whiplash mustache. And literally at one point, someone's like, you should go curl your mustache for them. And he like curls it up. I, I hate I hate people who pay more attention to their mustaches than any other part of their body. I hate facial hair. He looks like a douchebag. I I can't I can't with him already. And the fact that people think he's attractive, I'm again, it's the same thing like with Heather. Like all I can look at is his damn mustache. That's all I see is his mustache. And he has a mustache and a goatee. Like, what year is this? Stop it. We haven't gotten a whole lot from the deck crew in this first episode yet. So like, I'm sure their drama is coming as it inevitably does. But right now it's like Eddie versus Captain Sean because Captain Sean is micromanaging Eddie for no reason. Like Eddie has demonstrated he is good at his job. Captain Lee gave him a promotion at the end of the last season, which is why he is, you know, first officer this year instead of bosun. Um, So we don't need Captain Sean to be like telling Eddie to bring more pillows. And to be setting up the beach picnic. Eddie can set up a fucking beach picnic. He is fine. So right now, it's kind of, that's the only tension. Is like, what happened to Lee? And how much longer do we have to put up with Captain Sean? In terms of deck. The interior already has its problems. Because Heather seems to suck at her job. Which I feel like this is a running theme with every Chief Stew post Kate on below deck and Hannah on below deck met. I feel like they're all incompetent. Daisy was good on Below Deck Sailing. I take that back. But none of them seem to make very smart decisions. And like Kate didn't, and Hannah didn't always make the best decisions, but they were so much fun to watch because they were so witty and so on top of it that you kind of like forget the dumb things that they did. Like Kate, who in her first season had a major fuck up where she could have potentially misjudged the Dean, the client Dean, who was a total douchebag, could have totally misjudged his energy and gotten everyone, got herself fired and everyone screwed with Tip when she turned his bed blanket into a penis and then argued it was a rocket ship. He found it amusing. So great on her part that she could read his energy in that situation well enough to know that he would take it like a champ. But that could have been a huge mistake. And like, we don't even really think about that anymore. Because everything else Kate did, she's such a great personality and was so integral to how successful Below Deck was, we forget that she ever fucked up. So, but since then, since Kate left a couple seasons ago, like Francesca last season was garbage. She cried all the time. She had no leadership skills. She sucked. Heather so far seems to think that she's really good at her job, but has not demonstrated that. Like in the first episode, the premiere from this week, you know, that thing I'm talking about, (laughs) What did I qualify that? It's like in the first, there's been one episode. So in this episode, she gives Frasier second stew. But then during the, when they first get on the boat, and like, I guess pre-lunch and like drinks and stuff, she is having him load their bags into their rooms, make drinks, set the table, and also service 
also do service like with hors d'oeuvres and stuff. And Jessica, the third stew, is like nowhere to be found. So as he is literally running all over this boat, all the levels of the boat, all over the boat, making drinks that he's never made before, which like I do find it a little suspect that you are working on a yacht in a service industry and have never made a chocolate martini. I feel like that's pretty common, like, but whatever. He looks up a recipe and makes it and it looks delicious in the primary, loves it and keeps ordering them throughout the episode. So clearly he did something right and he's good at what he does. But like he didn't clean up because he's delivering a drink and she's just walking around like, Frazier, make sure you clean up. And then he drinks another drink and then doesn't put bottles away. She's like, Frazier, make sure you clean up. And she's like cleaning up the bar. But like while Frazier is delivering drinks and also getting the hors d'oeuvres ready and also like trying to get straight if they're supposed to be unpacking the guest stuff and which rooms people are staying in. So like Heather seems to be doing like nothing but again, like Captain Sean, micromanaging Frasier. And then Frasier later at dinner is on service and on cabins. So while the prime the guests are eating, he is both serving their food, then running downstairs, cleaning their rooms, making their beds, all of that stuff. Then having to run back up to clear the table, do the next course. It makes no sense. Like, the third stew should be doing one or the other of those things, either clearing the tables or doing cabins. Why is she Why is she in laundry and why is there so much laundry on literal day one? This makes no sense to me. And it speaks not really to Frasier at all, but to Jessica's seeming lack of motivation and or ability to work quickly could be part of it. Or it could be just that Heather like does not know how to manage people or to make decisions because Frazier gets so flustered that he ends up leaving a bag of trash on a chaise lounge in the primary bedroom and forgetting about it because as he's cleaning, he gets called up to do service. So in the primary, the next day makes a big deal. It's like, I'm not doing very well. There's been garbage in my room. And there's like, this is unacceptable. It's a rookie mistake. And like, yeah, it is. But the reason it happened is because you did not have enough people working or you didn't delegate them correctly. So it is not Frazier's fault. It is your fault. And then Frazier spends the rest of the episode like passive aggressively trying to like get clarity from Heather on what she wants him doing when, especially when she confronts him with like, just so you know, that can't happen. You need to make sure that you're cleaning, whatever. And he's like, okay, but you had me on both things. So just that's why, like, just, I'm not excusing it, but like, that's why is because I was doing two things at once. So I need to know which one takes priority. So if you want me on service, then I can't be cleaning rooms. Like that's the implication of all of this. So there's going to be tension. There already is tension there. There's going to be a blow up at some point. And I'm looking forward to it because team Frazier, I'm tired of these chief stews who come on and be like, I've been a chief stew for two years and I know everything. And like, normally it's the other way around. Like usually I feel like when, especially when it was Kate and Hannah as chief stews, that like the second stews would come on and feel like they knew how to run shit and I would be team chief stew. But like, I'm now realizing after Francesca last year and Heather this year that like, maybe the chief stews don't actually always know what, is best like they don't they're not always thinking ahead and i think that's heather's problem is that i don't know if she's like wanting to establish herself as like the alpha 
So she's basically just been like, just do what I say. Like rather than like planning ahead or giving clear direction, she's like wanting to kind of assert herself in the moment. Maybe that's a thing. I don't like that style of leadership, but it is a style. So yeah, there's that. And then Rachel as the chef. She is such good TV, but I cannot imagine working with her. She's fucking nuts. Like, she walked off the boat last year and was like, eat my cooter, go fuck yourself about these guests who wanted an admittedly outlandish meal. But like, it is literally your job to cook for them. Just cook for them. And then she came back with her tail between her legs, as the chefs always do. They throw these like egotistical... Um, temper tantrums and they end up running back. But she, she is back now. And I, I'm very interested in the fact that she's back because typically when chefs have like a really bad moment and threaten to quit, like they don't come back the next year, but then maybe they were just like, she's, she's just too good TV. And she's actually a talented chef too. But regardless, her, she is still mad at Eddie last year because on one episode of Below Deck season eight, they had a day off and she got friggin' plastered and embarrassed the whole boat in public where she was like cussing out a cover band on an island somewhere. And Eddie was like, this is embarrassing. Someone needs to talk to her about her drinking. She drinks and gets out of control. And it wasn't even like he was being mean about it. He was just speaking what everyone was thinking. And he didn't do it to her face. He did it like while she was drunk because she was so drunk that there was never a time for him to like ever, I think, talk to her about it and she saw it on the episode when it aired and is now just really mad at him for not coming to her and for like basically talking shit about her behind her back and so I guess that's going to be a storyline which is just absurd because everyone was doing the same thing like everyone talked about how embarrassing Rachel was last year so maybe let's see if she's changed her ways (laughs) or let's see if that chasm between Eddie and Rachel gets worse, which I'm assuming it will. And also I cannot wait to see Lee again because honestly, Below Deck is just not the same without him. He is so much fun. He's no nonsense, but also plays well to the camera. And that's the perfect blend for a show like this. So Captain Lee, Boat Daddy, Set of the Sea, can't wait to see you back. And I'm looking forward to the season. Below Deck, even in its most boring, infuriating seasons, like Kate's last season with Ashton and Brian being sexist pigs and threatening her and almost hitting her. And like, that was unacceptable and all that big bag of bullshit. I will never blame her for leaving the series or yachting after that shit show of a season. Um, even in its most infuriating seasons like that, it is so watchable and so dramatic and so entertaining. And again, even when it's at its most dull, like when there's not a whole lot of drama, I just love this concept. And I love the stupid little drama. Like, I feel like all of us can relate to the show because we all have little dramas at work, right? Like we all have our work friends who we could bits with and who we have, like we talk about how much we hate other people, but then we're nice to those people because it's a workplace, you have to be. Um, And we talk shit about our bosses because who doesn't? And our bosses talk shit about us working under them because who doesn't? And it's just, it's so relatable on so many levels. And I love it. And I cannot wait for the rest of this season. So Below Deck airs 9 o'clock on Mondays on Bravo. And I'm looking forward to being back on a boat. Yay! 
It's Monday, November 1st. So guess what, bitches? It's Christmas. <laughs> this is how capitalism and consumerism works. And you know what? This is the one time that I don't mind it. I fucking love Christmas. So this week, we're starting to get more Christmas programming. On Monday, um, we have the premiere of Judy Justice on Amazon's streaming platform, IMDb TV. Uh, sidebar. I have no idea how this works. I don't understand it. IMDb TV is apparently its own thing, but I think you can only watch it through Amazon video. So like maybe you can watch this if you don't have Prime. I don't know how that works. I, I, I honestly don't know. The Leverage reboot is on it. Bosch is moving to it with a new title and a new concept with the same people. And Judy Justice, the new Judge Judy show, which caused a stir a couple weeks ago because she did not invite back her bailiff from Judge Judy, but that's neither here nor there. That's starting on Monday. So if you can figure the fuck out what IMDb TV slash Amazon video is, feel free to watch that. <laughs> also on Monday, SEAL Team moves to Paramount+. Plus. The first two episodes aired on CBS, and now it's moving to be a Paramount Plus exclusive. And we have the season premiere of my favorite holiday TV series, Holiday Baking Championship on the Food Network. Can't wait for that shit. Okay, then we have nothing new until Thursday when Taste the Nation comes back for the first part of its second season with four holiday-themed episodes. This is the uh, cooking slash documentary series hosted by Padma Lakshmi where she goes around the country looking into different cultures, um, foods, basically. Uh, Head of the Class, the reboot of the 90s sitcom. All episodes drop on Thursday on HBO Max. And then the first three episodes on Peacock are releasing of the Siwa Dance Pop Revolution, which is some dance competition series starring Jojo Siwa, who is taking over the world. On Friday, it's the second season premiere of Animaniacs on Hulu, the third and final season premiere of Dickinson on Apple TV+, the third season premiere of Narco, or the third season entirely, I guess, of Narcos Mexico on Netflix, and Amazon has this new show called Tampa Bay's, B-A-E-S, about um, a bunch of lesbians living in Tampa Bay, and it's a documentary. So I guess it's like a real life The L Word. So I might, I might give that one a shot. That sounds ridiculous. On Sunday, call your grandparents because Yellowstone is back for season four on Paramount, not Paramount Plus, the Paramount Network. It's confusing. And then Holiday Wars returns to Food Network, and the Dexter reboot, Dexter New Blood, premieres on Showtime. For finales, the second season ends of Stargirl on The CW. We're getting part four of the reunion of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. And the first season of The Harper House ends on Paramount+. Plus. And the sixth season of Showtime's political documentary series, The Circus, comes to an end as well. Okay, so like I said, it's November 1st, so it's Christmas. So for the rest of the season, because if you know me, and a lot of you who listen to this... Uh, most <laughs> do know me, you know that I not only love Christmas, I love Hallmark Christmas movies. Even when they suck, I watch all of them. Sometimes I love to make fun of them. Sometimes I just love them. So my recommendations from now through the new year are going to be um, Hallmark Channel or Hallmark Movies and Mysteries, because there are two Hallmark channels, plus a streaming channel called Hallmark Now. I am going to be recommending one of their new premieres from the previous week on an episode of the podcast. So this past weekend, so Halloween actually ended weekend two of Countdown to Christmas, which yes, is too early, but I don't give a shit. 
I love these movies. So I'm going to recommend one from the first week, which was October 23rd, 22nd, 23rd, 24th. And so the way Hallmark is doing this is that every week there is going to be at least four new premieres, three on the Hallmark channel and one on the Hallmark Movies and Mysteries. So on Fridays at 8, Saturdays at 8, and Sundays at 8 on the Hallmark channel, plus Saturdays at 10 o'clock on Hallmark Movies and Mysteries. Then over Thanksgiving week, they're also doing 6 p.m. on, I believe, Friday and Saturday. When we get closer, I'll figure it out and let you know if you care. Regardless. So there are at least four movies premiering every week that I'm going to choose the best of to recommend to you. And you can catch these movies like, I don't think they're, um, like, they're not definitely not streaming anywhere. I don't even think they're streaming on the Hallmark streaming channel, Hallmark Movies Now. But you can catch them on demand. They rerun these movies 24 hours a day. So they are definitely all going to be on the air again in the next few days if you want to DVR them. I have Friendly TV. I got it for free for a year from my favorite podcast, Deck the Hallmark. Check them out. Um, or that's on Philo if you have that, that you can DVR, et cetera, et cetera. But my favorite of the first week that I am heartily, haha, pun for all of you who like Hallmark movies. They're called Hardies. That was bad. Uh, heartily recommend is Christmas in my heart. <laughs> I'm not drunk, I swear. It's just really cold in my house and it's early on Sunday morning. Um, <laughs> so I'm recommending Christmas in my heart. This originally aired on Saturday the 23rd on Hallmark Movies and Mysteries. It stars Luke McFarlane, Heather Hemmings, and Cheryl Lee Ralph. Now, Luke McFarlane is my forever and always crush. He was on Brothers and Sisters. He's openly gay, which is very rare for Hallmark movie stars in general, especially um, now to have them not playing gay. So like Jonathan Bennett was one of the other ones, but he now has been in a couple movies where he's playing a gay character. Uh, but Luke McFarlane is not playing gay characters. He's still a quote-unquote believable uh, leading man for Hallmark's audiences. And I wouldn't be surprised if most of them didn't even know that he was gay. But I do, and I love him for it. <laughs> so he is the lead in this. He plays a country singer who is very famous, but also very private. And he lives on a ranch in West Virginia with his biracial daughter, who is played by... Um, I wish I wrote her name down. I'm going to try to look it up as I'm talking. Um, who is played by the most adorable little girl. And she is so perfect and so wonderful. Her name is Maria Nash. And she's just the cutest little thing. She has spunk. She has attitude. She is so fun to watch. And also she hits on some really emotional moments as well. The best scene in this whole movie will likely be the best scene in any of these Hallmark movies this year, and maybe of any Hallmark movie that has ever been made. In two ways. One, because it is so emotional. It is a moment between a girl and her grandmother. It is a moment between two Black actresses. And it is a moment that is irrevocably and unmistakably Black in nature. Now, Hallmark has come under fire in uh, the past couple of years, rightfully so, for its lack of racial diversity in particular, and also for its lack of um, LGBTQ plus representation as well. And they are taking steps to fix that. Last year took some baby steps. This year, they're jumping in the deep end and I'm here for it. So there's a whole scene in this film. First of all, Luke McFarlane's ex was a black woman. 
Her mother is Cheryl Lee Ralph. So Luke McFarland's mother-in-law and grandmother of his daughter. Um, Heather Hammond's character, who is ostensibly the love interest of Luke McFarland's character and a successful violinist who also is teaching music lessons when she's home in West Virginia for the holidays, she is also Black. And there's a whole storyline about how wonderful it is for the daughter who the character's name is, I want to say Katie. Yeah, Katie Cat is Katie. Um, getting to see classical musicians who look like her. And then Cheryl Lee Ralph is a choir director. So she's also influencing being a role model for her granddaughter. And that is also beautiful to see. But the scene I'm talking about that I just got on tangent after is Katie is having a conversation with her grandmother about how she wants her hair done for her Christmas recital. And she says, I want it slicked back. That's how everyone does it for things like this. And the grandmother basically says, you know, if that's what you want, we can do that. But you can do whatever you want with your hair. There is no such thing as professional hair, basically. And it's a really, um, it's subtle in a way, but it's, it's not subtle, but it is subtle for what the conversation is to kind of have this conversation about what professional hair is. This is a hot button issue that black women deal with hair discrimination, especially in the workplace constantly. And she does not want to teach her, Cheryl Lee Ralph's character does not want to teach her granddaughter this false narrative basically of what professional quote unquote hair is. It is her hair. Hair is not professional. Hair is hair, <laughs> right? So she lets her granddaughter think about, you know, think about if you if you want that, we'll do it, but you don't have to do that. And then for the recital, she has her natural hair. It's not braided. It's not slicked back. It's just her hair. <laughs> it's, it's such a beautiful moment. It is a teachable moment. It is an important moment. It is a celebratory moment of Black culture, of Black women. It, this whole movie actually is a celebration of Black women because every role model and every positive influence in Katie's life is a Black woman. Like as much as her father loves her and Luke McFarland plays that part so beautifully of being this supportive, loving father who's trying to learn not only how to be a single dad, but to be a single dad who is also a celebrity living in a small town and trying to raise a Black daughter when he is a white man. And... That is a conversation I did not expect to see in a Hallmark movie, especially this early <laughs> in the season. And it's just, it's wonderful to watch. It is so touching. The movie itself is a little inconsistent. Like Luke McFarlane's trying to do like a Southern accent that's not always there, but like, I don't really mind because he he has such soul to him when he is on stage, like, or when he is, well, on stage too. I saw him on Broadway in The Normal Heart. He was wonderful, um, but that's neither here nor there. On screen, he has such a weight to him when he acts and such a soulfulness like just the camera tends the director of this tended to shoot him in close-up which is a great decision for a talented actor like luke mcfarlane because his face did the acting like i don't care if every once in a while he went in and out of an accent because his face is doing the heavy lifting his eyes are doing the acting and that's what matters to me and he just had so many touching sweet moments with his daughter. Like I was, you, as you overheard me thinking to myself, he calls her Katie cat, which is just so cute. And he's trying to teach her things that will help her that he can teach her. Like he's teaching her how to fix a car. Right. 
um, so that she doesn't have to rely on men to do this for her, but also because that's how he's connecting with her. That is something he can teach her. He can't teach her violin. He can't do her hair for her, although he does make it clear to the grandmother that he wants to learn. Um, but he can teach her how to be self-sufficient. He can teach her how to change the oil in a truck. And that is just so cute. And I, the ending is schlocky as they always are. And like not all the plot points make a whole lot of sense with like the professional orchestra that Heather Hemmings' character, Beth, I think her name is, wants to join. And it doesn't matter. It's a Hallmark Christmas movie. It doesn't have to make sense, but it's just so sweet and so cute. And I loved it so much. And that is my recommendation. Christmas in my heart, starring Luke McFarlane, Heather Hemmings, and we're your dream girls, Cheryl Lee Ralph loved this movie. That is my recommendation for the week. All right. Thank you all for tuning into this episode. I'll be back next week with more recaps, more reviews, more analyses, and another count of the Christmas recommendation. Have a good week, everyone.